Bible prophecy is unmistakable on this fact. The church is not the new Israel. We do not replace Israel. And I need to say that because we draw a lot of comparisons between Israel and the church. And as we wander through tonight, we're going to do it again. We're going to look at the priesthood some more. Leviticus chapter 8, if you want to flip there. And we're going to draw allusions from Israel to the church, from the priesthood of Israel to the royal priesthood, making comparisons, seeking understanding in the royal priesthood that Peter says that we've been called. But Israel is Israel and the church is the church and I want to make sure you understand that. So if you, if you want to see that video presentation, um, I'd encourage you to check that out tomorrow night at 7.30 Anacortes Library. <clears throat> now, Leviticus chapter 8, 9 and 10 details the eight-day ordination process of the priests. We're now to the point after all the setting up, all the talking about how the priesthood was supposed to be put together, how it's supposed to happen, what they're supposed to do, what the sacrifices look like, all of the laws and the regulations regarding all this. All of that's been given and now we are to the time of ordination. And it was an eight-day process, as we'll see. I'm going to give you an outline for the ordination going over these three chapters. Chapter 8 is about submitting to God's authority. Twelve times in chapter 8 the word commanded is used. Twenty times over these three chapters, commanded, the Lord commanded, He commanded the issue of submission to God's authority, His will, and His desires is preeminent in chapter 8. Chapter 9 is about revealing God's glory. For in chapter 9, after the process of ordination is almost complete, on the eighth day, Aaron will himself begin offering sacrifices and blessing the people. And when the blessing is given, what happens? What happens when the blessing is given? Who remembers from Sunday? The glory comes. When a people choose to bless each other, as the high priest blessed Israel, it was after the blessing of the priest on Israel that the glory of God came into the place. And I think we can, again, draw an illusion from Israel, the priesthood there, to the royal priesthood, that as we choose to bless each other, as we seek better for each other, as we love each other more, the glory will come. So chapter 9 is about revealing God's glory. Chapter 10 is about accepting God's discipline. And chapter 10 is one of the most difficult chapters to read in the Bible. For what happens there is nothing short of tragic. But we'll get there. First of all, submitting to God's authority. Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting... Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Now I was looking over this again, and I thought it was interesting, all the different things here, the elements that that God wanted Moses to bring together. It almost seems like a grocery list of sorts of all these different things. He says, get the high priest there, his sons, the congregation, the garments, the anointing oil, the offerings, the unleavened bread. Get it all together at the doorway of the tabernacle. But it's so much more than just a list. Because in this picture, we can see strikingly the body of Christ gathered together for worship. Look at this. The high priest. The picture of Christ Jesus, our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So let us hold fast to our confession. Jesus is there. His sons and the congregation. 
are a picture of Christ's people. A picture, not the church, and the church is not Israel, but it's a picture of the church gathered together, Matthew 18.20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The garments, Christ's garments are garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 tells us He's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You've got Jesus there. You've got the congregation there. You've got the garments of salvation, the robes of righteousness. You also have, meeting at the doorway of the tent of meeting, the anointing oil, which is a picture of... The Holy Spirit. The Spirit is there. First John 1.27 As for you, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and it's true it is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in Him. There's also the offerings there. We see the offerings of, for the, the rams. And, and the bull, the offerings all brought together, pictures of Christ's sinless worth. Hebrews 13.15 says, Through Him let it, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name when the body comes together to worship. We worship Christ for His sinless perfection, His worth. The unleavened bread is there. As we take communion, when we gather together, a picture of Christ's body. John 6.35, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And it all happens, it all happens at the doorway of the tabernacle. But listen, Jesus did something to the tabernacle when he dwelt among us. Jesus turned the tabernacle up on end. The tabernacle for the Jewish people was, was horizontal to the land. And they would go in through the doorways horizontally into the holy place and then into the holy of holies. But since Jesus ascended into heaven, the tabernacle has now been upended. And we go through the tabernacle to him. How does that look? Look in Hebrews chapter 8. Flip in your Bibles over there. The book of Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Hebrew writer says, The main point in what has been said is this, We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. So this tabernacle that was at one time horizontal has now become vertical as Jesus is in the Holy of Holies in heaven. Skip on over to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. Which tells us, Hebrews 9.11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Look down in verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Verse 26, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often, often since the foundation of the world, but now once, at the consummation of the ages, 
He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. The tabernacle is now perpendicular with Christ in the Holy of Holies as we seek him, as we approach him. And by the way, Jesus residing in the mercy seat of heaven, I think, is leaning forward. Which is why I eagerly await him. I mean, I think Jesus is in the start position. I think he is ready to come back, and we've talked about, and we've prayed about, and we've longed for his very soon return. Go back to Leviticus chapter 8. Now back in Leviticus 8, we covered a lot of this on Sunday. We're going to just pick out a few things in this chapter that I I wanted to not review, but point out things we didn't see on Sunday. Verse 10 of chapter 8 tells us the following, and this is interesting to me. It says, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. Then, watch this, he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now, Psalm 133, verse 2, recalls this moment, talking about the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robes. The oil was dripping off of Aaron. He was drenched with the oil of anointing. Moses got him good. And so Aaron is there, and and he's anointed. He's covered with this oil. But notice the first words of verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 starts out, Next... And verse 14 starts out, then. So what? Well, normally when you say next and then, you're talking about the thing that happens after what you've just talked about, right? Look at the order of things here. Aaron was anointed before the atonement was given. He was anointed before the atonement. His sons weren't. The atonement was given first. The sacrifice was done first. Then his sons were anointed. For you and I, we were not anointed before the atonement, before the sacrifice was given. The sacrifice comes first, and then the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We're cleansed by the blood of Christ, and then the Spirit comes into our lives. But this is backwards. In this instance, Aaron, as the first priest, as the high priest, is first anointed and then atoned for. Why is it backwards? Because Aaron, the great high priest, is a picture of Jesus, who was anointed before he made atonement. He was anointed at his baptism. You remember what happened? He came up out of the water. Now understand, Jesus was the embodiment of the Spirit of God. From the moment of his birth, from the moment actually of his conception, the embodiment of the Holy Spirit was the Spirit in the flesh. This was Christ. But when he was baptized, he was anointed with the Spirit. And you might say, well, why? Well, Jesus was walking out a human life like us. But in his body, though he was the embodiment of the Spirit, he was also anointed. As he came up out of the water of the baptism... You heard the voice of heaven. Well, maybe you didn't hear it if you weren't there. But God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so in that moment, and I love it, it's powerful. You see the Trinity. You hear God speaking. You see Jesus in the water. And you see the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. All three members of the Trinity, one place at one time, as Jesus was anointed for ministry. 
but the anointing came before the atonement. Why? Because for Jesus, the atonement was irrelevant. He was already perfect. He would atone for us later. He would be sacrificed, offered for us later, but His anointing came first. And so, even in the high priest of Aaron, we see in this moment, Aaron anointed first, atoned for second, as a picture of Jesus. And in John chapter 3, verse 34, Jesus says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he, speaking of God, gives the Spirit... The indication is to Jesus without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Aaron's anointment before atonement typifies Jesus, our great high priest. Now, verses 13 through 32, the sacrifices were given. We read about those on Sunday. We saw that in verses 23 and 24, an interesting thing was done. As the sacrifices were given, Moses took the blood from the sacrifice, dipped his finger in it, and he put a little bit on the right lobe of Aaron's ear and on his right thumb and on his right big toe, which is very odd, interesting, and we talked about on Sunday what that meant, the right ear, hearing the word of God, the right hand, doing the work of the Father. By the way, what is the work of the Father? What is the work of God? Faith. Say it loud, David. Faith. It's faith. That's right. It's belief. Jesus said, believing is the work of God. This is what you must do to work the work of the Father. Believe in Him and in the one whom He has sent. And again, we talked about Sunday. We get so hung up on the whole works aspect of things. Working out our faith instead of faithing out our work. There's a big difference when the faith comes first and the work flows out of the faith. You want to work on anything in your Christian walk, work on your faith. The works will come. The actions will follow. Well, down in verse 33, it tells us that you shall not go outside. Now, they've done, again, all of these sacrifices and the the unleavened bread has has been offered. Everything's been given. Everything's been done. Moses, by the way, doing all of this in chapter 8. We get down to verse 33. And the Bible tells us, God speaking says, You shall not go, actually it's, it's Moses, sorry. You shall not go outside the doorway of the tent of meeting for seven days. Seven days. Until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled, for he will ordain you through seven days. Then the Lord commanded to do as has been done this day, to make atonement on your behalf. At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you will not die, for so I have been commanded. Seven days. Seven days. Verse 36, Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things the Lord had commanded through Moses. Look back in verse 33. It says, Until the period of your ordination is fulfilled. I think it's important to understand what this word ordination means. Tuck away the thought of seven days for a moment. The Hebrew word for ordain or consecrate is yad. Y-A-D. If you're writing it down, yad. And it literally means, and I love this picture, it means to fill the empty hand. That's ordination. To fill the empty hand. Every priest comes to the Lord empty-handed. Every priest comes before the Lord with nothing to give of themselves. Empty-handed, hand open, expectantly, wanting to be filled, but empty nonetheless. You ever feel like you've got nothing to offer the Lord? You ever sit in church and you're looking around and you see certain people on the worship team and you see other people singing and you see someone else standing up and sharing a communion and you hear someone else share something on a Wednesday night and you're going, wow, these people, they all have something to offer. I've got nothing. 
I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I come and I go week in and week out and I just feel empty handed. Then my friend, you are in perfect shape to be a priest. (laughs) You're in the right place. It's the hands that are full that can't take what God has to give. But the hand that is empty, waiting, expectantly, seeking, hoping that the Lord will fill it. That hand will be filled. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Often a verse used for giving. tells us that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As is written, he scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And so you may feel empty-handed at times, but God is the provider. His is the hand of providence. And Jesus says, you know, He's not going to give you a stone or a snake. He'll give you fish. He'll give you bread. And those two symbols, by the way, of fish and bread, what do you think of when you think about fish and bread in the Gospels? Maybe you, like me, think about the feeding of 4,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. Or the feeding of 5,000 people. Why did Jesus do that? Well, they were hungry. Yeah, but there was so much more. Jesus was giving a powerful example, making a statement. God always has enough to give. There's always more than enough to go around. What the Lord gives, the Lord multiplies. And so you wait on the Lord open-handedly, expectantly. Lord, what do you have for me? Not what does Pastor Rick have for you. I mean, I've had people come up to me and say, hey, what can I do for the bridge? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm doing for the bridge. <laughs> Ask the Lord, as Sharon was sharing. Ask Him. Ask Him. Oh, it's too simple. So we never ask Him because we don't ask, we don't receive. Come to the Lord empty-handed, open-handed. God, fill the hand. Well, again, we see this... Number seven, the the picture, the number of completion in the Bible. And the priests have to remain in the tabernacle for seven days. The anointing has happened. The offerings have been given. The atonement has been made for the priests. And now they have to remain in the tabernacle seven days. Seven days. Now I can make several allusions here. We can say it's an allusion to the seven days of creation that God took to create the world. We can say it's the 7,000 years of world history as God works His plan. Well, Rick, I thought the world was 6.5 billion years. What is it up to now? Does anybody know what the evolutionary standard is now? Because it just keeps getting bigger. They've got to keep adding on to make evolution work. See, all God needed was seven days. But I firmly believe that the earth will reach 7,000 years, and at that point, all things will be done, completed for God's plan. That's just my thought. I could be totally wrong. Ask me in about a thousand years. It also speaks of seven years that the bride is with the groom. Now those of you who are interested, we're going to be starting a study in Revelation on Sunday nights, September 18th. And we're going to be going through that book and we're going to see what happens in the tribulation period, a seven year period of God pouring out wrath on the earth. But during that time, during that time, the church, the bride of Christ, is on a heavenly honeymoon for seven years. And it's interesting that in a Jewish wedding, traditional Jewish wedding, the bride and the groom would come together after the ceremony and they would go into the house that was actually built on by the groom to the father's house. They would enter that house, close the door behind them, and they would stay there for seven days. 
Seven days, the bride and the groom together. There are a lot of powerful pictures with this seven days. But I think maybe there's just a real simple explanation for this. A simple reason why they were to stay in the tabernacle for seven days. Look at verse 35 again. At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days. Why? To keep the charge of the Lord. So that you will not die, for so I have been commanded. To keep the charge of the Lord. It's kind of a holy woe Nelly. (laughs) Now think about what's happened. Ordination day for Aaron and his sons must have been a heady experience. Being covered with those garments. Aaron is now wearing the breast piece with those precious stones. The onyx stones on his shoulder. He's got that turban with the golden plate on the front of it that says, Holy to the Lord. Oh, he's looking good. He is looking flashy. He's been anointed. The blood sacrifices have been given. Aaron and his sons, it's a proud day for father and sons. And so God says, before you serve the people, back off, boys. Settle down. Sit back. And consider what it is you are to do. Keep the charge. Keep the charge. The word charge in Hebrew is mishmareth. It literally means to watch. Watch. But the priests are ordained. They're ready to go. Stuff can start happening now. We can really get this church on the road. Watch. Keep the charge. Listen. Wait. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So often we think we've got to rush ahead. I've got a vision from the Lord. got to go. I've got some ideas that God has for me. got to do them now. Everything that's on my mind has to happen. Come on, let's get moving. And God's saying... Give me seven days. Settle down. Wait. Be sure. Don't leap headlong into new ideas. So many ministries, so many churches fall apart for rushing ahead of the Lord. Keep the charge and allow God to set the pace. And Isaiah says, They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's interesting because we often want to fly like eagles. But God says it's not just flying. It's also running. And it's also walking. See, I'm with you in those glorious moments when you are flying high. And I'm with you when the world around you is busy, when you're running at a a hectic pace. But I also give you strength when you're walking. When you're moving at a slower pace. God sets the pace of my life. He says, keep my charge. I will ordain you over seven days. And gang, by the way, our lifetime is our ordination. The lives that we live. These three chapters covering the ordination of the priest. We are in the process of ordination across our lives. I've mentioned this before. I love how Russ signs his emails. At least to me. For a long time, Russ was one of our elders. Uh, when I first asked him to be an elder, would sign his emails, Russ Pittis, and then in little parentheses, E-I-T, which I figured out stood for... Can I share this? I, I guess I'm already sharing it. So. <laughs> stood for elder in training. And I loved it. I just loved it. And then he heard a message we were talking about the priesthood several weeks ago, and, and he started signing it P-I-T. Pitt. His last name is Pittis, so it's kind of funny. You know. Elder Pitt. P-I-T Priest in training And that's what we are We are not full-fledged priests, gang 
We are a royal priesthood in the process of ordination as we walk out and live out our every moment of our lives. We will reach that point of the consummation of all things where our ordination is complete. And in Christ we are complete. God sees us as complete, but we live out these lives going through even the tough stuff as you'll see Aaron go through in a moment because we are priests in training. Like Cheryl and I always telling Hayden not to grow up. He's our youngest. He's eight years old and there are times where I just squeeze his head trying to keep him from growing. (laughs) Try not to do that when I'm angry with him but that's another thing. But let me just say something. Teenagers especially, listen to me on this, don't rush it. Don't rush it. Don't rush headlong into what you think God has for you. Sit back and let Him lead you. He will. I guarantee you He will. I wish someone had told me that when I was in high school because I spent so much time rushing ahead and missing stuff that He had for me right then because I wanted it out there. And here I am 40 going, man, I missed a few things. Don't rush it. So He has the boys wait in the tabernacle and now we get to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the second part of this, the revealing of God's glory. Look at verse 1. It came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf and a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Didn't we just have offerings? Yes. Moses was giving the offerings for Aaron and his sons, for the priests. Now the priests are going to work. Now they are going to begin to minister. Verse 3, Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering, or for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord. And a grain offering mixed with oil for today. Listen to this. Today the Lord will appear to you. Last time that happened, all of Israel barely, barely freaked out. And you may recall, they said, No more! Moses, you go talk to God. We can't handle this. It's too much. Now Moses is telling Aaron to tell the people, He's coming back. You're going to see him today. Today, God is going to show up. Now eight, this is the eighth day, and eight is the number of new beginnings in the Bible. The eighth day being the first day. Now I said this last week and there was some confusion. Let me make sure you understand. The eighth day is the first day. Okay. The seventh day is the last day. Seventh day is the last day of the week. The seventh day is for the Jew Sabbath, Saturday. The eighth day would be the first day of the week, the day after seven, which would make it the eighth day. Does that make sense? So it's also the first day, the eighth and the first, okay? So it's the eighth day now, the first day of the new week. This would be, by our reckoning, it would be Sunday. It's the day after the Sabbath. This is the day that the priests go to work. That's fascinating, because it's also the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The day Jesus came back. The day of of truly of new beginnings for all mankind, for all of eternity. It was the eighth day, the resurrection. Now Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23 says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because it continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Listen. On earth, in his lifetime, Jesus did not serve as a priest. Jesus served as the offering. But on the eighth day, Jesus became the high priest. 
He was the offering as he walked on the face of the earth, offering up himself, offering the teachings, offering literally his body on the cross, but on the eighth day, Sunday, presentation day, Jesus resurrected to be our great high priest from that point forward. And he ever lives and reigns in heaven to make intercession for us today. Our great high priest. Verse 5 going on says, They took what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting. And the whole congregation came near and stood before the Lord. Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you again. Guess what? The glory is going to appear. Do these things. The glory will come. And it's a glorious day for all of Israel. Aaron the high priest, with the help of his sons, begins now to offer sacrifices. The sins of the people are atoned for. Their guilt will be assuaged. And the peace offerings give them a fresh new start with God. Peace with God the Father. But I really wonder if the greatest thing on this day, of, of all these things for the children of Israel, wasn't anticipation. God's going to show up. He's going to be here. The Lord is coming today. We're going to see Him again today. Now verses 9 through 21 detail the offerings Aaron gave exactly as we studied in Leviticus 1 through 7. Point by point. And you've already seen it. You've already read it. If you've read those few chapters, it is detailed again. And some people might say, reading the book of Leviticus, details, details. (laughs) God goes detail after detail after detail. And then he goes back and he repeats himself again. And for people like Russ and I, that's a good thing because it helps it get in. It's a long way into the center of the sponge. And so God does the details over and over. I'm not saying that you have so much, my friend. But details, details. By the way, there's a detail I left out on Sunday, doing a little more research about the Cohen modal haplotype. You all remember that, of course. You can probably share it with your friends and talk all about it. The Cohen modal haplotype. What in the world is that? It's that DNA signature. Remember when we talked about that certain Jewish people with the last name of Cohen, Cohen is the Hebrew word for priest. And so they actually discovered, not only is there a last name which indicates maybe this person is of the priestly line, But there was something in their DNA strand, a signature on the Y chromosome that is specific to a substantial number of Jews with the last name of Cohen. God's marking that these priests would still be able to be discovered as priests. Even though all the priestly lineages were destroyed in AD 70 at the fall of Jerusalem, there still is a marker. The Cohen modal haplotype. Well, something that, that I thought was interesting, I just found out, is this, this marker, this genetic marker, is the same both for the Sephardic Jews as it is for the Ashkenazi Jews. And you're like, excuse me? Kazuntite? <laughs> what are you saying? Sephardic, Ashkenazi. Okay, after the, the diaspora, which is the dispersion of the Jews, as they begin to be driven out of Israel, they settled in different areas. The Ashkenazi Jews settling in northern European regions. The Sephardic Jews settling in the regions of the Mediterranean. And in the Zionist movement at the end of the 1800s, as these groups of Jews, the Sephardic Jews, correct me if I miss this, Frank, but the Sephardic Jews were the ones who were already mostly back in Israel, but the Ashkenazi Jews began to come down back out of northern Europe, moving back in. And there was a little tension there. Because as the Ashkenazi Jews came back, 
bringing with them the Zionist movement, the big return to Israel, it started to cause problems among the Arabs. And the Sephardic Jews were going, hey, we were doing just fine until you guys started showing up. Here's the interesting thing. Though these two groups of Jews were separated, separated and never together literally for over a thousand years, the Kohen modal haplotype this Y chromosome DNA signature is exactly the same for the Kohens and the Ashkenazis as it is for the Sephardic Jews. God wrote this into the DNA of these priests. Interesting, God is into details. Details. Why so much detail? Well, today there are, there are rabbinical schools in Jerusalem, in Israel, yeshivas, where Kohens, if they can show their ancestry, are learning how to precisely offer the sacrifices that will be necessary in the long-awaited for temple. There are still, if you're not aware of this, many who believe the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and the Bible says it will too. That will happen. And so there are schools of training in the, the processes of the sacrifices. Well, what do they use to know how they're doing it right? Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, but specifically chapter 9 because it is so detail-oriented that the priests now, the Kohens, are able to study it and look at it and understand precisely how these sacrifices are supposed to be given. You might say, what has that got to do with me? I want you to understand that God is into details. Your details. The details of your life. G. Campbell Morgan was one time approached by a woman who was asking for prayers and needed some help with something. And, and as he counseled her, she said, you know, I, I just, I, I have some things that I, I don't really, I can't really pray about, but I just need some help with. They're just little things in my life. Just little details. And G. Campbell Morgan said to her, what in your life is big for the Lord? What in your life is so huge and so important that you would bring it to the Lord as opposed to all the little details that you think are not important enough for the Lord? God is aware of the minutia of your life. The little things. The details. God is into details. We sit around in our lives thinking, well, this, this is not that important. I'll just kind of figure this one out on my own and God's going, I can help. I like the details. I like the little things that are going on with you. Not sure, parents, how to deal with a teenage son who is going off. Now, that's a big deal. Take it to the Lord. Not sure what to do in a job decision. Not sure what God would have you to do just today. <coughs> Little details in our lives. God is into the details. He's aware of the little things. Well, Aaron blesses the people. All of the sacrifices are given in chapter 9. Skip down to verse 22. Rick, you're skipping all that? We read it. Trust me. I compared. Word for word. We covered it. But down in verse 22, as we read Sunday, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making a sin offering and the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And then Moses and Aaron went out into the tent of meeting. And when they come out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Watch this. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their feet faces they fell face down as his glory shone around I don't think we have any idea what we're really asking for <laughs> Lord show us your glory 
folks. God, we want your glory in this place. Are you ready to be flat on your face? Because the glory of God, at least what I read in the Bible, is mind-blowing. The people were flat on their faces. They shouted, and it wasn't, Praise the Lord! It was, Amazing the glory of the Lord. And in the middle of all of this, and this eight days of ordination, and everything just couldn't be better for Israel, boom, tragedy strikes. At the worst possible time. Everything was going so well. Aaron wasn't paying attention to a couple of his boys who got out of line. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord boom in an instant two of the five priests were dead on presentation day and I'm thinking God, couldn't you have waited? Everything was going so well. It was so wonderful. The praise was so glorious. It it, it was perfect. And Nadab and Abihu got a little out of line. And God struck them dead. These two sons of Aaron got burned. Fire, by the way, it, it, it indicated here, it exploded right out from the presence of God. It came blowing right out of the Holy of Holies, right through the tabernacle, straight out, and licked them up, consumed them, wasted them in an instant. And all Israel was shocked. It was all so perfect. And now Nadab and Abihu, two of the priests, are dead. And I'm reminded of Hebrews 12:29. We must offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. We underestimate Him. We get awfully casual with Him. Hebrews 10.31 tells us it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you may be saying, alright, well why? Why did this happen? What was so bad about them just offering this little flash of fire? Who cares? What's the big deal? Problem number one was their method. Their method. Nadab and Abihu improvised. They decided to play a little jazz on presentation day. And so they're off improvising. They're ad-libbing. They're caught up in the wonder of what's taking place. Oh, look at Aaron. He's looking so good. Our dad and our brothers are around. And wow, and God's glory's here. And I want a piece of this action. Let's offer up some more fire. Man, if God wants fire, I'll bring fire. And so they grab their fire pans and they make fire. But the fire they brought, God called strange fire. Strange fire. What does that mean? Is it like some kind of voodoo type thing? Some hocus pocus deal? No, it's very simple. The Hebrew word for strange is zur, which means adulterous. It was adulterous fire. Not the fire that God had told them to bring. What had God said? He said the fire was only to come from the altar. You're not to make it or bring it from somewhere else. The fire comes from the altar, not from the priest. And the fastest way, by the way, 
To literally burn out as a Christian is to offer strange fire. Fire that does not come from the altar but comes from you. So we seek the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we desire Him to come. The fire has got to come from the altar and not from the priest. And the trouble that churches get into from time to time with the experience of the Holy Spirit is when they are offering fire that originated right here. And not from the altar. Not from the altar. There is no alternative, if you will, no alternative fire to the altar of the Lord. The motivation gang of anything done in the name of Christ Jesus is the altar of Christ Jesus. It is the cross of Christ. It is Christ Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Paul writes, The love of Christ controls us. That word control is literally holds us together. Christ's love holds us together. And having concluded this, that one died, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, the priest offering the fire, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf, the fire comes from the altar, not the priest. Well, verse 3 going on says that Moses then said to Aaron, and this is stunning, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. His boys were just killed by the Lord, who he was serving in his very sight, and Aaron held his tongue. He kept his peace. The first problem of Nadab and Abihu was their method. The second problem was their motive. They wanted to be glorified. How do you know? Because of what Moses said. Before all the people, I will be honored, says God. Not the priest. The role of the priest is not to be honored. But on the proudest day of his life, Dad Aaron sees his two boys fried alive. But Moses quickly reminds him, the honor, the glory is God's alone. Isaiah 48 verse 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Well, but Rick, doesn't Jesus bear the glory of God? That's right, because God won't give His glory to another. He only bears the glory Himself. Are you saying that Jesus is God? You got it. You caught that. Good. I will not give my glory to another. Is God worried about competition? Is He concerned that maybe if someone else has the glory that they might run away with it? That they might try and take over? No, but God knows our hearts. And if we begin to glorify a person or a church or a ministry, ultimately we will get burned. He's the only one who will not burn anyone who depends on Him. And 1 Peter 2.6 says, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. And I fear there's far too much chasing after glory in Christianity today. Among the simplest of Christians to the greatest of Christian organizations, there's just this drive, this tendency for glory, this tendency to be, want to be seen, to want to market and advertise our presence. And we are so blessed that God has set the bridge up in such a way that we can't advertise our presence and has taught us about this over time because I'll tell you what, first day out, I would have had signs up. I would have been doing flyers and mailers and having, you know, big events to make sure everybody knew we were here and God says, no, sorry, keep it quiet. The glory is mine, not yours. You know, 
Jesus' ministry always resulted in God being glorified. Isn't that interesting? Everything he did resulted in glory to God the Father. Matthew 9, verse 8. Jesus heals a paralytic. And you go, wow, he healed a man. Praise Jesus. But the people, it says, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and they glorified God. They glorified God. Matthew 15, 31. The crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. I don't know how Jesus did it, but he was able to minister in such a way as to duck down and allow the glory to go right on up to God. Though he was God in the flesh, Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no He knew he was equal to God. There was no robbery there. There was no stealing anything for him to be equal to God. But he made himself of no reputation, being God in the flesh. Jesus set the bar for us, but he wasn't setting it high. He was saying, how low can you go? (laughs) It's the holy limbo. Jesus as God in the flesh. He sets the bar low. He says, "Don't, don't try to glorify yourself. Humble yourself. You get below the bar. And let the glory go to the Father. Anytime glory goes to a man or a group of men or a church fellowship, the glory is dangerously misplaced. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify you and praise you and say, What a cool person you really are. Oh, sorry, it's a misquote. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. And I believe this is an area where we need to constantly retrain our minds and our hearts to the praise and glory of the Father when any good thing happens in a ministry or service in which we're involved. Well, Aaron immediately realizes that his two sons used the wrong method. He sees that they offered strange fire, and certainly they had the wrong motive. They were seeking their own glory, and they were literally burned alive. But Aaron, amazing man, Aaron, held his peace before the Lord. Watch this, verse 4. Moses called also to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uzziel, and he said to them, Come forward and carry your relatives, what's left of them, from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. What was on the outside of the camp? That was the the clean place where the ashes were burned. It's the only logical place to take the charred bodies of these two boys. And so they came forward and they carried them, still in their tunics. Tragic to the outside of the camp just as Moses had said and then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar Moses speaking do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die for that, and that he will not become wrathful against all the congregation but your kinsmen the whole house of Israel shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about you shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you so they did according to the word of Moses what's he saying what's going on here Moses says Aaron brothers of the two dead boys don't mourn don't even shed a tear don't tear your clothes don't wail The people of Israel will do that. You don't do that. And I read that and I thought, that's harsh. How could you not? Fathers, for a moment, consider if these were your two sons. They didn't mean to. 
Or maybe they did, but give them a break. They're, and they're gone. How would you deal with it? How would you deal with it? How were they able to deal with it? How did Aaron keep his tongue and keep silent? Well, he did have the anointing on him, didn't he? He had the anointing of God. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it allows us to remain quiet even in times of unrest, even in times of confusion. We can be still and know that He is God. But something we need to talk about, and I want you to understand. The fairness of God is a real issue for a lot of people. A lot of people. Christians and non-Christians alike talk about the fairness or the unfairness of God. But the problem, gang, is not God's lack of fairness. It's our lack of foresight. It's not the fact that He is unfair. It's the fact that we don't understand. We don't see far enough ahead to know what He's doing. Ezekiel chapter 24. The prophet Ezekiel is approached by the Lord and the Lord says, Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife. I'm going to take your wife. Verse 16 of Ezekiel 24, he says, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take from you the desire of your eyes. I'm going to take your sweetheart, your darling. These are words of tenderness in the Hebrew. I'm going to take the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. And I think, what kind of a God could do that? I'm going to take your wife, Ezekiel. I'm taking your boys, Aaron. No weeping, no mourning out of you. Keep your composure. The price of being a prophet. God was revealing to Israel what was about to happen to them through Ezekiel's situation. But let me ask you this. Do you think Ezekiel and Mrs. Ezekiel at this point right now are bewailing or bemoaning the unfairness of God? Do you think this couple who at this point are reunited in heaven and understand God's fairness and are with the Father at this moment right now, do you think they're sorry that God did things the way He did things? I don't think so. They're enjoying the benefits right now. The benefits of heaven, the benefits of faith, God honoring His judgments as righteous and true. And I say all this for this reason. When we go through tragedy... When we go through hardship or struggle in our lives, the temptation is to question or doubt God's mercy. Or like a lot of Christians have begun to do, especially in our day and age, to rail at God. Oh, God and I are close, so I can shake my fist at Him. I'm really angry at God right now for what He's doing in my life. We'll get through it, but God and I are not on good terms right now. I'm really fed up with the Father and how He's handling things. Listen to me, don't do it. Don't do it. Why not? Because you do so at the expense of God's reputation. You know, anytime we bewail our situation in life, anytime we sink into depression and go, it just, this just stinks. My life is terrible. Nothing goes right for me. Anytime we begin to express these things, we're saying, God, you're unfair. You don't know what you're doing. This is not right. And especially as a royal priesthood. Gang, we become too informal with the Father. People are calling him the man upstairs, the big guy. Proudly talking about shaking our fists at him. Well, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tells us this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. 
Now I only know in part. Then I will be fully, I will know fully just as I have been fully known. And you know what we're going to say when we know fully? Revelation 19, verse 1 and 2. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and right. We will proclaim everything God has done as perfect. Every misstep, every problem, every tragedy in our lives, every sorrow that we had to deal with as priests in training, we will proclaim as right on. Then. Then. Not so much now. You have an anointing. Don't cover your head going around all bummed and depressed. Be moaning and mourning the negative circumstances of your life. If you do that, you're indirectly implying the unfairness of God. But His judgments are absolutely perfect. They're perfect. And the sooner we recognize this, the sooner we can accept His will for our lives. Verse 8 going on tells us the Lord then spoke to Aaron. And He says, Do not drink wine or strong drink. Neither you nor your sons with you. When you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die, it is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. And I go, huh? This father is ripped apart inside. He's keeping it together somehow. And you're talking to him about the evils of liquor? (laughs) This is what God chooses to say? Why? Why here? Why at this time? I think Nadab and Abihu were probably drinking. I think this is in context. That part of the reason these boys did what they did is their judgment was impaired. They weren't thinking about what they were doing. Why else at this point would God all of a sudden start talking about drinking? Aaron, your boys were enjoying the celebration a little too much and their judgment was impaired. Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 21, this is repeated to the priests, nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court. Proverbs chapter 31 verses 4 through 7, King Lemuel is giving this particular proverb and he says, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him who is bitter give the strong drink to the person who is perishing the person's life is going down the tube if you're going to hell you might as well drink (laughs) but if you want to be a king if you want to be a priest if you want to be a leader stay away from it stay sober don't cloud your brain don't impair your judgment Well, are you saying don't drink at all, Rick? I'm saying weigh carefully these things before the Lord. I'm not going to tell you not to drink. If I want to walk around with that on my conscience, I don't think so. Some of you might say, well, why not? Tell us not to drink. We need that perspective. You need to study the Scriptures and go before the Father and make the decision. Because we do know that the very first miracle of Jesus was changing the water to wine so the party could go on. We'll explain that another time. But the bottom line is these boys were in a place of priestly ministry, of leadership, and their judgment was impaired. And so the decree is handed down. No drinking in this situation. Verse 12 going on. Moses spoke to Aaron. 
He spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons Eleazar and Ithamar. Take the grain offering that is left from the Lord's offering by fire and eat it. Uh, unleavened beside the altar for it is most holy. And you shall eat it moreover in a holy place because it's your due and your sons due out of the Lord's offering by fire. For thus I have been commanded. Well, remember they, they, the priests got to take some of this and actually eat it. The breast of the wave offering however and the thigh of the offering you may eat in a clean place. You and your sons and your daughters with you. For they have been given as your due and your sons due out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up the breast offering by waving they shall bring along with the offerings by fire of the portions of fat to present as a wave offering before the Lord. So it shall be a thing perpetually due you and your sons with you just as the Lord has commanded. Verse 16, but Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering and behold it had been burned up. It wasn't supposed to be burned up. It was supposed to be eaten by the priests. Oops. <laughs> After what just happened with Nadab and Abihu, I'm not sure we want any mistakes. But the goat of the sin offering had been burned up, and so he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, two sons left, saying, Why did you not eat the sin of the offering of the holy place? It's most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation and to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since his blood has not, had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded you. Moses is angry here. And rightly so, because he saw what just happened. He doesn't want this to happen again. He says, guys, you're messing. This is not the way it's supposed to be done. After what's already happened here, we can't miss a thing. Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the holy place? Why were they supposed to eat the sin offering at all? Why eat the sin offering? Because by doing so, they identified with this, the guilt of Israel. In the same way Jesus says, John 6.53 Jesus, our sin offering, says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. And so the priests ate the sin offering as a sign of identification, both with the sins of, of the people and with the offering for them. But Moses, again, Moses is incensed here. Why didn't you eat the sin offering? Listen to Aaron's broken heart. Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day, they presented their sin offering and their burnt offerings before the Lord. They who? His other two sons who had been killed. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? What are you saying, Aaron? Aaron's heart is broken. He's saying, I can't eat today. I am doing the best I can. I'm just trying to hold it together. I have no appetite. I can't sit down and have a meal when my sons are dead. I can't do it, Moses. I'm doing my best. And Moses says in verse 20, well, it says when Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. Moses understood. And the reality of love took precedence over the requirements of the law. For these two surviving sons did mess up. They did miss what was commanded. They didn't do it the way that Moses, commanded by God, had told them to do it. But in the current state of things, this chapter, though tragic, ends on a note of grace. As God deals with us, our story ends on a note of grace. Let's stand up together.
you pray with me? Holy Father, dear Lord, we just pray that you will write these things in our hearts and in our minds. That you will give us the ability to retain what, what you've taught, what you showed us. And Father, that you would increase our trust in you even when the unthinkable happens. Even when, at the height of all good things, when everything seems to, it, nothing seems like it could go wrong. When it bottoms out, Father, help us to trust you. Help us to know that you are fair and right, that your judgments are perfect. And give us peace in the times we need it most. Father, let's pray tonight for those whose hearts are broken for those who are hurting for one reason and another and God you're aware of the details of of that brokenness of that hurt of that pain you know what's going on I I wish to add to the prayer Lord that you will give each of these the strength to praise you to honor you to glorify you and to understand you better through the struggle that they've faced or are facing And help each of us, Father, as we walk each day to trust in your perfect will and your outrageous grace for us. Bless this fellowship. Bless this body, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.